Hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Matthew, reading from the 27th chapter. We're going to focus on verses 6 through 10, but I'm going to back up and start reading at the third verse. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, And they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word this evening. May he truly bring it alive for us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we consider this this hugely poignant scene, may may we grasp the underlying meaning. May we apply it uh, to... May it speak to our hearts in a very special way. And may we see the imagery, first of all, the background, and then what's going on here, the the fulfillment of prophecies, and what that means to each and every one of us, the significance of that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Before we get started um, with our text, I, I, I want you to form an overshadowing image in your mind that, that is going to be there all evening. And pretty much everything we're going to say needs to have that image in the background. And it is very simply the image of Good Friday. It is a man on a cross. It is Jesus the Christ as he hangs on the cross, suffering immeasurably physically. We know that. But not that pales next to... The, the, the wrath of God that, that he experiences there. Now, if we can keep that in the background, I think that this passage, at least the way that I want to bring it out, is going to make a lot of sense. I'll keep referring to it as we go, but even though we're going to form other images from the text, and we're going to look at some prophecy, I want that to be the overriding image of the evening, the man on the cross. Now, we're going to look at something this evening that I, I think is, is a phenomenon of human behavior. And it's something that, that I have called selective, um, selective ignorance. Now, when I use the word ignorance now, I'm not talking about uh, uneducated or, or shallow. Um, I'm talking about ignoring something. I'm talking about willingly, voluntarily choosing to ignore something. And, and so many things in our lives, so many of the problems that we face come about because of selective ignorance. Now, what that means is that these are intelligent folks. I mean, these are people who are capable of making rational decisions, and yet 
Yet, they selectively ignore certain things, like we ignore our health problems, don't we? We kind of ignore things that happen. I mean, we have an ache, we have a pain, we have a toothache, something is going wrong. We know there's something there, but we just ignore it because we wish that it would go away. Unfortunately, when you get a little older, it doesn't go away. And, and the same thing happens with relationships. Uh, people begin to drift apart and things come between them. And they need to stop and begin to speak to each other and work it out and have counseling. But, counseling. but it, it just is something that they choose rather to ignore sometimes until it's too late. Sometimes it's very physical and mechanical, like ignoring a leak in the roof uh, that only comes when the rain's horizontal and then after a while it starts coming all the time and you keep ignoring it and someday, someday the roof caves in. Let's hope it's not tonight because we do have a leak in the roof. But brothers and sisters, when we start talking about selective ignorance, when we're talking about the gospel, when we're talking about the man on the cross, when we're talking about God's plan of redemption, when we're talking about his perfect holiness and your sinfulness, when we talk about that, then there's eternal consequences, devastating consequences to selective ignorance. Well, that's what we're going to see in our text this evening because... That's exactly what's going on with the priests. They, they're choosing to selectively ignore something, to voluntarily be blind about who Jesus is and the fulfillments of so many prophecies. Jesus told a parable, he told several parables that fit here, but one in particular, he told the parable of a, of a man who, who had a vineyard, and you know this very well, he had a vineyard, and he hires some people to run it for him, and he's in a foreign place, and so after a couple of years, he sends his servants to collect some of the fruits of the vineyard. Well, the people have decided they don't want to give up any of those fruits, so they mistreat the servants and send them back empty-handed. He sends more servants who they also mistreat mistreat then he sends more and he beats them and then finally an allegory of the life of Jesus Christ the king sends his own son and says surely they will respect him and honor him but instead of respecting and honoring him they kill him and throw his body in the lane well, you know what happens to them. It's given differently in the different Gospels. One of it has Jesus saying it. Another has uh, the person who asked the question saying it. But what's going to happen to those people? Well, the king is going to send his armies and wipe them off the face of the earth. There's going to be judgment. There are consequences for selective ignorance to ignore the inevitable. Now, when Jesus says that, after he gives that parable, this is what he says. From Matthew 21, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. We looked at that just last Sunday from Psalm 118. He's talking about himself. He's the cornerstone. Well, look what he continues to say to these Jews he has just told the parable to. He says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now, brothers and sisters, those are warnings 
of impending judgment. Those are warnings that their favored status as God's people is going to be taken away from them. Those are warnings to pay attention to the situation and not to practice practice selective ignorance. Don't simply act like it's not there because it's going to be too late. There's going to be consequences and there's going to be judgment. And nobody likes to talk about judgment. Nobody likes to talk about condemnation. Nobody likes to talk about damnation. No one like to talk, likes to talk about hell. In fact, most pastors, they, 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 they like to avoid it at all costs. And yet, you really can't go through the Gospels without talking about the flip side of the Gospel. You, you can't go through these Gospels without talking about the judgment that we are saved from. And the glory that we are saved to in Christ Jesus. Because the alternative to that is horrid judgment. Now most of the world is ignoring that. Most of the world is choosing to selectively ignore the fact that there is judgment for those who do not know Jesus Christ. Now the gospel is a beautiful, the greatest news anyone has ever heard. By the way, the gospel is not just telling people technically how to be saved. The gospel is the story of Jesus Christ, who he was, where he came from, what he did, where he is now, how he's going to return, the incarnation of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, the coronation of Jesus, the rule and reign of Jesus, and the second coming of Jesus. All of that is wrapped up in what the gospel is. Well, a very vital part of that, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus came to die. The man on a cross cannot be ignored. You can't turn your head. You can't walk past him. You have to deal with him somehow. Somehow you have to deal with the man on the cross. You cannot ignore him because eternity depends on that. And, and, and that, I believe, is what, what Matthew is telling us in this passage here. And I hope to bring that out Now, if you haven't been here for one of our Good Friday evening messages, let me tell you that well, we have this sort of strange series going. We have one, one installment a year. And what we decided about 10 years ago, what I decided, is that we are going to take the events of Good Friday and we are going to harmonize the gospel, meaning we're going to take every single event that happens when we come to an event that all the gospels handle, well, we're going to bring all the information and in all four gospels together. But we are going to linearly make our way through Good Friday. Now, we're counting time the way the Hebrews did. Because they started the day at dusk. So Good Friday actually started right about the time that they are taking the Last Supper. And then sing a hymn and go through the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane. All of that is part of, actually, Good Friday. It will end, it starts at sundown on what we would call Thursday. And it ends on sundown at Friday just as Jesus is slipped into the tomb after he is crucified. So we're going to go through all those events. Now, where we are so far is we've made it all the way through the trials, through the interview with Annas, through the kangaroo court with Caiaphas, through the rubber stamp court at dawn when they actually condemned Jesus, and now they have whisked him off to Pilate. 
Now, two years ago, we studied what I just read you. We went back into the third verse, and that talks about Judas and his abysmal lack of discernment, his irrational behavior, and now turning around and seems to have remorse because he has condemned innocent blood. Last year, I, I, sort, I didn't really skip forward because there's a couple of things that are going on at the same time. In other words, in John, they've already gone to, uh, to Pilate. In Matthew, all he says is that they took him away to Pilate. And then he goes in and he tells us what's happening with Judas and these high priests. So pretty much when we saw last year that they took Jesus to Pilate's house, but they wouldn't go in the house because they didn't want to get Gentile dirt on their feet so that they could take the Passover. We talked about the rank hypocrisy of that and the legalism of that. And it doesn't matter that you're killing the Son of God. You don't want to get Gentile dirt on your feet. And the reason that I kind of slipped over and looked at that because we were establishing the importance of the kingdom feast of of communion. And it seemed to fit better. But now I want to go back. And I want to pick it up where Judas returns the money. And I want to focus in on these priests. I want to focus in on what they're missing. And I want to focus in on their selective ignorance and how devastating that is going to be for them. So here's where we are. This is where uh, basically the story is. Judas has returned. He is, has, for some reason, he has remorse. I don't think he has repentance. I don't think that he has come to the realization that, you know, Jesus is the Son of God. I think he's just remorseful because he has indeed um, uh, accused or betrayed innocent blood. I think he's surprised at the speed with which the Sanhedrin moved the trial along and condemned Jesus. I think he's probably figured out that he was duped, that he was used and manipulated. And so he's gone back to the temple. Again, Jesus is already at the front door of Pilate, getting ready for that part of the trial. But he's gone, Judas has gone back to the temple to return the money. He doesn't want it anymore. He wants to give it back. And the priest cold as they can be, said, what is it to us? We don't care. It's your problem. You deal with it. So Judas, importantly, throws the money on the floor, the 30 pieces of silver, and he leaves and he commits suicides. Now, when we come upon this scene, we're back in the temple and these priests are there with a dilemma on their hands. What are we going to do with this money? We can't touch it. We can't put it back in the treasury. And the reason they can't put it back in the treasury is because it's blood money. So take a look at the sixth verse. The chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, silver set, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. Now, once again, just another example of rank hypocrisy and the absurdity of legalism and what happens when you take the spirit of God out of his teaching. There is an obscure verse, and I shouldn't say it's obscure because I'm sure it wasn't obscure to them. It is obscure to me. In the 23rd chapter of Deuteronomy that they're referring to, and it goes like this, the 18th verse. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow. For both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. 
So I guess what they've done is taken that and applied it to any ill-gotten gain. So their dilemma is that they've got 30 pieces of silver scattered all over the temple floor and they can't return it or they won't return it to the treasury because it's tainted. It's blood money. Now, once again, doesn't seem to bother them that they betrayed, they paid to have Jesus set up so that he would be turned over to the Romans and crucified. That doesn't seem to bother them at all. What does bother them is that this money is tainted and they don't know what to do with it. So they decide to be pragmatic and solve another problem that they have. Look in verse 7. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Now we'll come back to the potter's field and where it is and its significance in a moment. But you see, they had another dilemma on their hands. What do we do with all of these strangers who come to Jerusalem and die? Let me explain what's going on. You see, Jerusalem is the number one pilgrim destination for all the Jews scattered across the the known world, the the diaspora. And there were three mandatory pilgrimage feasts every year. Passover, which is what's going on right now. And then what they call the Feast of Weeks, which we call Pentecost because it was 50 days after the Passover. And then the Feast of Tabernacle or the Feast of Booths. Those were mandatory pilgrimage days, feast. So people would come and make the arduous trip from all over the known world to Jerusalem for those feasts. Well, inevitably, what would happen is some people were infirm and ill when they came, and they died there. And others, the trip was arduous. It wore them out, and they would pass away. And then there were those who were just plain old. And so what happened was that the Sanhedrin, of course, which is the ruling body there in Jerusalem, ends up with corpses on their hands and they don't know what to do with them because you see they can't do what they do with criminals and murderers they can't throw them into the valley of Hemen, which is just on the west side of the old city a valley that's there Gehenna Jesus would call it representing hell a horrible place and, and also, they didn't want to buy them a tomb. I mean, tombs were expensive. Jesus was put in a nice tomb. But it was the tomb of a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. So tombs were very expensive. Full-fledged Hebrew funerals were not cheap. And so with all these people who were coming to, to Jerusalem and dying, what do you do with their bodies? So they decided, let's take the 30 pieces of silver and buy the potter's fields. And we'll find out a little bit later on where that field is. Well, anyway, that's the reason that they decided to buy this. Look in the 8th verse. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Just notice at this point that it's been renamed. Okay, It used to be the potter's field. Now it is called the field of blood. Some people think it's because that's where Judas died. Other people think it's because he betrayed innocent blood and that money was used to buy that field. Well, anyway... Matthew now is going to make reference 
to the fulfillment of prophecy. If you remember, if those of you who have studied Matthew or remember our study of Matthew, Matthew is huge on the fulfillment of prophecies, of showing over and over and over again how the Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled. Now, on this particular occasion, the ones who are fulfilling the prophecy are the very people who are condemning themselves by their selective ignorance. And he's trying to wake them up in that and also to wake us up as well. Look at verse um, um, 8. I'm sorry, verse 9. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now, there's a huge controversy going over on about those two verses. We're not going to go into it. But the problem is that if you, if you read that first part, the, 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 the first part in verse 9, and you go and try to find it in Jeremiah... You won't find it. It's not there. But if you go to Zechariah, you'll find it. There it is. And so, of course, you know how skeptical scholars are. They like to cause problems. And they say, well, obviously Matthew just didn't know his history and which prophet he was quoting. And so he thought that Jeremiah had said both of these, but Zechariah actually had said it. I mean, that is so arrogant. The, the, the arrogance of modern scholarship just floors me over and over again. Matthew knew the scriptures a lot better than they did, and he's a lot closer to the source. And, and, and anyway, it's not something that is never done. It, it, it is, I'm not going to say it's commonly done, but it, there are precedents to where when you had two prophecies that were quoted in the New Testament that were very similar, that one came from a major prophet, one came from a minor prophet, they would just cite the major prophet. A great example of that is Mark. Right at the very beginning of his gospel, first chapter, second verse, this is what he says. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face. Isaiah didn't say that. That's Malachi, says that. Now, Isaiah picks it up from there and uh, goes on and, and says, um, um, who will prepare your way? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark doesn't quote or cite Malachi, even though Malachi said that. He just gives it to Jeremiah. They did this on a regular basis. So it's not a big deal. So we're not going to say any more about it. We're just going to leave it there. It's not a problem. But it does mean that we have two prophecies that we need to look at. And we need to delve into it. And I wish I had more time to go deeper into these. We're just going to skate across them. But let's take a look first at the prophecy in Zechariah. And then compare it to the scene that we have here in Matthew. Because what Matthew is saying is that what Zechariah said is being fulfilled here. And I think that you will see it's a stunning fulfillment. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Zechariah 11. I'm not going to read a whole bunch of it. I'm just going to really read the 12th and 13th verses out of chapter 11. But there's much more that Zechariah says. But here's what the prophet Zechariah says. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. 
Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I, priced by, I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Once again, stunning comparison to what we have in Matthew. And again, I didn't read everything, but there is such a parallel here. First of all, in both of these passages, God has sent a shepherd to look after his people. In Zechariah, it's the shepherd king. In Matthew, it's the good shepherds. Those shepherds immediately in both books run into controversy with the existing shepherds, the ones who are supposed to be leading the people in the right direction. Well, these are the religious leaders of the day, and they are in both books the chief priest to be exact. All the people, not just the shepherds, turn against the shepherd king. Zechariah puts it this way, they detested me. And in Matthew, in just a few minutes, actually, a couple of hours, the people who just prior the Sunday before were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Many of them are going to be crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And so therefore, it wasn't just the shepherds who were against the Messiah. It was indeed the people as well. There's a dire warning in both of these, a warning that if they're not careful, if they don't watch and see God's redemptive plan unfold, this is the Messiah. This is the one God has sent. If you don't believe in him, there are serious consequences. Brothers and sisters, that's the man on the cross. You can't ignore him. You can't walk by him. There has to be something that is said or done or or, or decided as far as the man on the cross. And this is in both of these. Both of them, 30 pieces of silver is the amount of money. Both of them, the money is trivial next to what's going on. So both of them, the money is returned. 30 pieces of silver is about the price of a single slave. In both of them, the money is thrown into the temple, and in both of them, the end recipient of that money has something to do with pottery, either a potter or a potter's field. So, so here, here's the point that I think Matthew is making by quoting Zechariah. These priests knew this. They, they were scholars. They understood the Old Testament inside and out. They should have put two and two together and recognized I am living out Zechariah's prophecy. But they chose to ignore it. The blindness was voluntary. It was selective blindness. Well, brothers and sisters, if these priests should have known this, you doubly should know it. Because you have the history that has followed this. You have seen this play out. You have seen the judgment that God makes against his people play out, especially in 70 AD. Now, two verses that I didn't cover. Again, I'm just going to tell you what they they were. If you back up to the 10th verse, you, you see the breaking of a staff. And it's the staff of favor. So what God is saying that as judgment here, the staff of your favored position as my people is broken. If you go down to the 14th verse, just after this, there's another staff broken. It's the staff of union. 
The staff of the nation of Israel that is going to be disbanded and dispersed in just 30-something years when the Romans destroy Jerusalem. In other words, it is, it is stunning the degree to which this has been fulfilled. So the point is this, with that kind of evidence, how can you walk past the man on the cross? There's like 400 fulfilled prophecies that he is the Messiah of God, that he came to die for your sins and my sins, that without him we are lost. How can you pass him by? How can you selectively ignore something so huge when the warnings of judgment are right in front of you? And if you don't think these are warnings of judgment, just stick around. (laughs) Turn to Jeremiah. The, the, the main passage that Matthew is quoting, Jeremiah 19. And again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, a little bit longer of a passage, the first 13 verses, but I'm not going to read them all. But once again, the fulfillment of this passage, very similar to Zechariah, is stunning and should have been something that the priest picked up. Look in verse 1 of chapter 19. Thus says the Lord, Go buy a potter's earthenware flask. We're right back to potters and pottery. Take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests, the chief priests and the elders of the people, and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom, the Hinnom Valley on the western side of, uh, of the old city, and the entry at the entry of the potsherd gate, and proclaim there the words that I tell you. We'll talk about the location of this in just a moment. But he tells Jeremiah that we're, we're going to have a, an object exercise. So take the potter out to where we think is exactly the same place as the potter's field. As I said, we'll get to that. Look in the third verse. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. Brothers and sisters, we have this little analogy, don't we? My ears are, 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 are burning. Somebody's talking about me, usually good things. That's not what this is saying. So harsh, so devastating, so great will the judgments that God will bring against these people that your ears will explode. You won't be able to process it. Because that's how devastating it is when you fail to notice God's plan. Look in the fourth verse. Because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods, whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known, and because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence. Now we'll talk about those gods in, in, in a few minutes, but I want you to notice that it's the blood of innocence there in Gehenna in the Hinnom Valley. They used to burn their children to the gods Molech and worship the pagan gods and do all kinds of unspeakable things. It was a place where innocent blood was spilled. But that's exactly the same thing that Judas said when he came back and he said, I have sinned because I have betrayed innocent blood. There's a tie-in together between the two. Look at the sixth verse. Therefore... Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. Now, once again, that word Topheth helps us identify where this was. Uh, um, and there's another word used for the same place in Acts when this is, is discussed there, the first chapter of Acts. But what this is, there's a place 
right at the intersection of the Valley of Hinnom along the western side of the old city and the Kidron Valley along the eastern side. They come together just south of the old city near kind of the Pool of, of, of Siloam. Now, there was a, a place there that apparently in ages past had a rich deposit of clay. So that's where all the potters would go and get their clay to make their earthenware um, uh, uh, dishes and cups. And that's why it was called the potter's field. But apparently what happened is that they exhausted the clay supply. So there's not anything left. Uh, And so what do you do with that? It's a worthless piece of property, but perfect if what you want to do is get a big open grave where you bury foreigners and strangers, people who don't have a place to be buried People who have no other place to be buried. Perfect. So therefore, most likely, this is exactly the same place. The place that Jeremiah is doing this object lesson. The place that the priest bought is exactly the same place. And it will be renamed. So don't miss that as well. Look in the um, 10th and 11th verse. Then you shall break the flat. Oh, I'm sorry, the 8th verse. And I will make this city a horror, a thing to be hissed at. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all its wounds. Now, I left out verse 9 on purpose. It speaks of horrific things that occur at this time. Cannibalism, people eating each other. And Josephus tells us that in 70 AD, when the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem, and they were there for a long time, that they actually started doing that. They started eating their babies, and they started eating each other. Horrific things that were occurred, but exactly fulfilled. Perfect to the letter. It was exactly fulfilled. Jeremiah wrote this hundreds of years before Christ. Jesus was 30-something years before the Romans came. And the Romans perfectly fulfilled not only what, what Jeremiah said, which could have also been fulfilled by Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Same thing happened in that siege. But also in 70 AD, a horrible judgment. Then in verse 10 and 11, Then you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you and shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, So will I break this people in this city as one breaks a potter's vessel so that it can never be mended. Men shall bury in Topheth because there will be no place else to bury. Once again, just stunning fulfillment. First of all, the religious leaders had become corrupt in both times, both places, and in specific. Both of them talk about the chief priest and the elders of the people. In both times, they were leading the people astray. In Jeremiah's time, actually worshiping the gods of the pagan countries around them. But in Jesus' time, in Matthew's time, they were worshiping a god that they called Yahweh. And they said, we're worshiping the true worshipers of Yahweh, but they had made up their own God and and turned the temple into a shrine of of their own, made him more into a mascot than anything else, who did whatever they wanted to do. And they made up their own rules. You see, sometimes the worst apostasies are when you continue to call the God you worship God, but it really isn't the God of Scripture anymore. The theme of the warning Again, both in Jeremiah and Matthew, it's potters, pottery. It's all through there. The location, as best as we can tell, seems to be the same place. The same place that Jeremiah goes to to break the pot is the same place that 
they, 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 they bought. And by the way, they excavated that spot years ago, and they found open lots of human remains that kind of gave the impression that that was an open grave. I think all the bones are in some Greek Orthodox monastery someplace. But nonetheless, they, they found exactly where this, this graveyard would have been. Um, and, and so the location is probably the same in both of these, as in Zechariah, the people are rejecting in, in Matthew, the Messiah, in Jeremiah, God's plan of redemption, not turning back and worshiping God as they should. And the consequences were devastating. Both of them renamed the place, Jeremiah to the Valley of Slaughter, Matthew to the Field of Blood. Both of them show that apostasy will lead to God removing his hand of blessing and allowing the enemies to take over and actually be those who bring the judgment against God's people. God will not be mocked. After a while, he gives the people exactly what they want. You don't want me here? I will remove my hand of blessing and gives them over to their base instincts. And then the kicker, I guess, that what really brings this together is that in both of them, the burial place was a place to bury those who had no place else to be buried. Strangers, people outside of the covenant community. All right. Why is this passage here? Why, why do these passages exist? You see, in this particular study, this series that we have, we're not going to miss anything. We're not going to skip any passage that's part of Good Friday. So we had to go into this tonight, even though it talks about some harsh subjects and some judgment. But why is it here? Why did Matthew include it? And more importantly, why did the Holy Spirit include it? The Holy Spirit doesn't waste space in his word. Well, I think on the one hand, it's to show us the darkness of the hearts of those who are sending Jesus to the cross. I mean, this is the world in the time of Noah, wickedness, no light in there whatsoever, just a dark, dark place. And also to point out the rank hypocrisy that Jesus is up against and these religious leaders. I mean, whatever is pragmatic is what they're going to do and they're going to redefine laws and rules according to what they want them to define. But I think it also points us to the dangers of false religions. And brothers and sisters, this is so poignant to today. I, I mean, I could go off on a rabbit trail here. I'm not. But I mean, one of the things that it points out here is that, that in Matthew's time, the problem was not that they were worshiping the gods of Molech, not that they were worshiping idols made of silver or bronze. They were worshiping Yahweh, like the children of Israel when they made that golden calf. They're worshiping Yahweh, except they've made another god than the real Yahweh. He's not really the Yahweh of Scripture. And so there is a whole bunch of people right now who call themselves Christians who are worshiping a different Christ. They're worshiping a Christ that has no power, who has no supernatural capability, who's not alive, who simply is a thought process. That's not the Christ of Scripture. And yet they still call themselves Christians. That's dangerous. That's dangerous when you start to, to, to twist the meaning of a true religion. 
But as I said, brothers and sisters, once again, I think the real reason here is, is a warning. I think it's a warning, and I'll just get real personal. It's a warning to you. It's a warning to me. I mean, this is a warning that says, you know something? God will not be mocked. You're going to have to do something with that man on the cross. You're going to have to, you can't walk past him. You cannot hide your face. You cannot act like he doesn't exist. Most of the world today knows about Jesus Christ. They've heard the gospel, but they are selectively ignorant about him. They just walk right by as if by turning their head and shutting them out of their mind, they can make him go away and they won't suffer the consequences of denying him. Whether you accept him or not, whether you believe in him or not, whether you consider him to be important or not, he is the, the hinge upon which eternity swings. You will either spend an eternity with him in heaven or you will spend an eternity in hell. And that is the condemnation that comes from not knowing, not believing Jesus Christ and being selectively ignorant about the truth. Now, brothers and sisters, the gospel is the most beautiful thing in the world. We know this. It is just so glorious. But what makes it so glorious is the cost that it was to God. I mean, that's the reason I want you to keep that picture of the man on the cross. Do you realize how expensive that is? There was only one way for God to save us, for him to enter space and time, to take on the attributes of a human being, to walk on this earth amongst us, to be mocked and beaten and nailed to a cross. But what was the worst part about it was that God poured his wrath out upon him so that my sins could be forgiven. You don't get forgiven without Jesus Christ. Without him on that cross, that is what is so good news. The judgment that you avoid is an eternal judgment. It's horrible. It's horrific. It is frightening. It keeps people up at night. But it should. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, it should keep you up at night. You should be scared out of your wits. But the man on the cross came to die for you. If you'll accept him, if you'll believe in him, if you'll trust him, if you'll give him your life. If you will accept the, the penalty that he paid, if you, will, if you will believe in him, not only will you be forgiven of all your sins, but his perfect righteousness is imputed to you so you can stand before a holy God. That's the beauty of the gospel. But what makes that so awesome is the judgment that is avoided. But let me just leave you with this. How costly that was how how devastatingly costly it was for that man to hang on that cross do you really think that God is just going to let you turn your head and ignore him like he doesn't exist did you really think that he's not going to take it personally that he's not going to hold you accountable so it is my prayer that whether you are here or whether you're watching online that you won't be selectively ignorant. Not about this. Accept Jesus as your Savior now. Because that's what this entire time is about. The one who came to die for you. So that you might be with him forever. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, <clears throat> we thank you. The image that we have before us is horrific. Jesus dying on a cross with your wrath upon him. Oh my goodness. Uh, 
There, there, there's nothing more horrifying than to think about what your wrath for an eternity must be and the cost of that. Lord, may we never trivialize it. May we recognize that, that we, we simply, ignorance is, is, is no longer a, 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 an option. We need to know, we need to know him and he needs to know us. Thank you, Lord, that you have led us to the cross. Thank you, Lord, that we bend our knee there. Thank you, Lord, that we trust in him and believe in him and love him. Thank you for the salvation. Thank you for the righteousness. May his name be exalted forever and ever. Amen.